Welcome to the Modern Slavery Pack podcast. I am Jakub Sobik, I'm a communications director at the Center. The Modern Slavery and Human Rights Policy and Evidence Center was created to enhance understanding of modern slavery and transform the effectiveness of laws and policies designed to address it. We are funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council on behalf of UK Research and Innovation. On the 30th of January, we held a workshop which brought together academic researchers with people from small NGOs with limited experience of participating in research. This is the second in our series of events attempting to build capacity across the whole sector, including ourselves, to learn how to do modern slavery research better, so it's more accurate, so that it's more inclusive and so that it has a better potential to influence policies to address modern slavery. We've been hearing from some NGOs, and particularly those smaller ones, that they would like to take part in projects with academic researchers, but that they may have limited experience of it and that they would like a better understanding of how academic research works. So, we've invited two guest speakers to talk us through it. Firstly, we've had Karen Evely, who is a senior research facilitator at the Law Faculty at Oxford University, who talked about the institutional structures and processes inside the university. Then we had, a, uh, we had Professor Joe Meehan from the Liverpool University, who talked us through how the actual research process works. As we at the Modern Slavery Pack have been trying to build partnerships between academia and non-academic partners in all the research projects that we funded, we've also included a short presentation from our partnership manager Owen Johnston with the lessons that we at the Modern Slavery Pack have learned so far. This podcast is a recording of that event. Just to flag that we took the questions and answers part of it out to protect the privacy of attendees and to make sure that everyone can safely take part in these conversations. In the meantime, feel free to drop us a message through our website, uh, modernslaverypack.org, or through our social media channels on Twitter at slaverypack and on LinkedIn, where you can just search for the Modern Slavery Pack. Okay, here we go. I hope you enjoy listening. So, um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, my name's Owen Johnston. I am Partnerships Manager at the Modern Slavery and Human Rights Policy and Evidence Centre, or Modern Slavery PEC for short. Um, and welcome to this morning's workshop on building the capacity of smaller NGOs to partner on research projects. I'm going to go through some quick um, housekeeping and introductory points um, before we begin the workshop proper. Um, and then we will also have some time at the end for Q&A and discussion. So just to begin with a few housekeeping points, uh, we're recording this event um, and we will publish the recording afterwards on our website and our YouTube channel for anyone who's not able to make it in person. We will record the whole event, but we will only publish the main part of it. We won't publish the Q&A discussion part at the end. So if you are um, if you don't want your sort of question to be recorded, ask it in that final section and that won't be included. Um, but we, we record the whole thing because it helps us take a record of the meeting and put together any sort of follow up documents like uh, FAQ documents uh, we might want to put together. Uh, everyone's camera and mic is off by default. Um, so uh, your image shouldn't be available to anyone else. If you do have any concerns around anonymity, please feel free to use a pseudonym instead of your real name for your meeting ID. Um, it's uh, quite easy to look up how to do that online, but we'll also post a link to some instructions in the Q&A um, in case you haven't done that before. Uh, one thing to say is we don't have the chat function turned on for this meeting. What we do have instead is the Q&A function. So if you're in Microsoft Teams, either in the desktop app or online, you should see the Q&A in your top menu. If you click on that, you can uh, write in questions there. They'll come to the, the Modern Slavery PEC team. And we'll review and publish those questions for others to see. Um, if you can't see the Q&A function, don't worry. It should work for most people. But if it doesn't, you'll still have an opportunity to ask questions by using the raise hand function uh, in that final part of the workshop. I'm going to quickly go through our standard meeting rules. This is a set of meeting rules that Modern Slavery Pack use for any kind of larger external meeting or event. 
And the purpose of these rules is just to make sure that uh, the events we organise are safe spaces where everyone feels confident to contribute openly. Um, so just a reminder that this event is a public event, so it's open to anyone um, and comments are sort of available for anyone to use and attribute. Please be aware that there might be people in attendance at this event who have lived experience of modern slavery. There's no requirement to disclose any experiences during the event, but please be mindful that statements might be made that do disclose personal narratives of modern slavery. So with that in mind, we ask that all attendees are sensitive and respectful, listening to all points of view made and responding to those and any disclosures respectfully. Please don't ask anyone for any details of their experience of modern slavery, um, because disclosure is not necessary to participate. And please be mindful when using terminology that references people who have lived experience in modern slavery. Um, at the Modern Slavery PEC, we tend to use the terms people with lived experience or survivors. We try to avoid using they uh, as a collective noun so that we don't other individuals' experiences. But please, you know, just respect the individual's wishes in their use of terminology to describe their experience. We also tend to avoid using the term victim uh, to avoid uh, denying agency to people who have experienced modern slavery. And we use the term modern slavery itself as an umbrella term covering a range of different offences and types of severe exploitation. You can see more information about uh, how we understand that on our website, but we don't make any assumption that that definition should be uh, uncritically accepted or adopted by others. Uh, I already mentioned anonymity. Please respect individuals' rights to that. So um, uh, ensure that anyone who, who has their camera and their mic turned off and uses a pseudonym is still included, and we will do our best to do that as well. Um, and then finally, we know that discussions around modern slavery can include upsetting and distressing topics. So please do take breaks as you need to, to protect your own mental health um, and feel free to remove yourself from the event temporarily or permanently if you need to. Um, we'll make sure to do what we can to protect people in the meeting and provide a platform for respectful and open conversations, which means that if anyone violates the rules that I've just been through, um, we might remove you from the event um, or stop you from attending subsequent events. If you have any question or concern during the event or following it, you can see our safeguarding policy on the Modern Slavery PEC website, and that also includes a full written version of the meeting rules that I've just read through. So I hope that all makes sense. Do feel free, as I said, to ask any questions and we'll uh, happily answer those. And we'll also post a link to our safeguarding policy in the Q&A for the meeting. So just to recap today's objectives, um, we heard from some of the NGOs that we work with and that we engage with in our work um, that they wanted more support and information about how they can partner on uh, research projects with academic researchers, um, particularly smaller NGOs who don't have any in-house research capacity and maybe don't have experience of working on research projects. So that's really what this workshop is about, to help those NGOs understand more about how they can partner on research projects by um, giving some more information about both the academic landscape in terms of the institutions and the finances, and also how the research process works, the different stages that that involves. But hopefully this is also of interest to academic researchers and funders and others who um, work with academic, non-academic collaborations in some way. And then finally, we hope that all the events we organise um, can help to facilitate new connections in order to support future research collaborations. Uh, when you signed up for this, we asked you if you were happy to share your details with other participants at the meeting. So if you said yes, we'll include your name and your contact information in a list of participants, and we will share that after the meeting with those participants who consented. Just a quick note to say that the Modern Slavery PEC is focused on modern slavery research, and I'll talk more about our organisation in a second. Um, and in general, our experience is, is fairly UK based. But I know there are lots of people on this call outside the UK and who work on issues beyond just modern slavery. Um, and I hope that a lot of what we say will still be very relevant for you as well. So in terms of the agenda for today, which you will already have seen in the meeting invitation, um, I'm going to quickly introduce the Modern Slavery PEC in a moment, and then I'm going to talk briefly about some lessons learned from the work that we've done with uh, research projects that we have funded. Um, and some of the experiences they have had in terms of academic, non-academic collaborations. Then I'm going to hand over to our two speakers. I'm really delighted to welcome two fantastic speakers today. So we have Karen Everly, who is Senior Research Facilitator at the Law Faculty at Oxford University, 
And Karen works across the faculty supporting researchers with funding, with grant applications, all aspects of project administration, and has a real depth of expertise across all aspects of running research projects, including collaboration. And then we have Professor Joe Meehan, who's Professor of Responsible Procurement at Liverpool University, has a background in industry before moving into academia and has carried out research on topics including modern slavery and sustainable supply chains. And Joe led a PEC project, uh, which included a partnership with two NGOs, um, so has direct experience of these issues. And then at the end of the workshop, we'll leave uh, an amount of time for general Q&A and discussion. Although feel free to write questions into the Q&A throughout the workshop. Uh, and there may also be um, some time for any immediate questions after each speaker has finished before that final section. So um, I'm now going to briefly introduce the Modern Slavery PEC for anyone who's not familiar with the organisation. So we are a UK based research funder. We fund research on modern slavery. Um, we are ourselves uh, an investment of, of UK public money by UK Research and Innovation, the main UK research funding body. Um, and particularly, we are an initiative of the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK with support from the Economic and Social Research Council. Our initial funding is for five years. We were set up in 2019 and we have funding through to the end of March 2024, but we hope to continue after that point. Um, and we're actually a group of six uh, partner organisations led by one of those partners, which is the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law. Uh, and that's where we're based and where we have our offices in London. So these are the six partner organisations that make up the Modern Slavery PEC. It's four universities and two independent research organisations, um, all based uh, in different parts of the UK. So we're a research funder, um, but we are a bit different to other research funders because we're a policy and evidence centre. So that means we commission and fund independent impartial research that provides analysis on aspects of modern slavery. But we then work closely with the projects that we fund to ensure that the evidence they produce drives real change in policy and practice. So we work to translate the evidence that comes out of the projects we fund into practical recommendations for decision makers. We help to connect those funded researchers with uh, policymakers and other decision makers that they want to influence. Um, and particularly, we work to facilitate new collaborations and connections in modern slavery research. Um, between people who often have not previously worked together. So that might be bringing academics together with policymakers, with businesses, with NGOs or with survivors. Because we know that there are lots of individuals and organisations um, in the UK and globally who are working actively to address modern slavery and they have many different approaches, perspectives, experiences and so on. And we believe that there's a lot of potential there for new collaborations, which can then generate new evidence about the issue um, and that can help inform uh, policies and decisions uh, that are taken to address it. So one thing we can do as a funder is we can bring people together and support dialogue between them. Um, and that's partly what today's event is about, to talk about how that can happen. But even if you don't work directly on modern slavery, um, there's still lots in the discussion today that will be relevant to your work. So I'll talk briefly now about a few lessons taken from modern slavery PEC funded projects. Um, these are things um, that have come out of the projects we've funded and worked with. And I'll talk about the types of roles that NGOs have played on some of those projects, some of the challenges and the opportunities that we've observed, um, some lessons that we think we've learned around what works well. And then finally, a few things that we as a funder are doing differently as a result of the experiences that we've been involved in um, or that we've observed in the projects that we've funded. So how do NGOs collaborate in projects that we fund this? Um, well, there are various different ways, and I'm not going to go into the detail of the terminology and the roles because Karen's going to speak to that in her presentation. But, but briefly, we've seen NGOs on our projects as funded non-academic partners in a number of cases where they've been closely involved in doing the research. They've been co-designing the projects, or maybe they've been leading on particular parts of it. Um, often, because of the nature of the work that we're focused on, NGOs have been partners on projects with a specific role around facilitating meaningful engagement with people who have lived experience of modern slavery. Um, but also NGOs are often partners um, who are leading on dissemination activity or leading on policy influencing activity um, that comes out of the research they've been involved with. That's where NGOs have been part, a funded part of a project. They've also been on projects as non-funded partners. 
or collaborators. Um, often that might be that they're a member of an advisory board or a project steering committee, um, which can be a great way for NGOs to be involved in research, um, even if they don't necessarily have the time or resource to commit to being part of a project, because um, that still gives a measure of influence over the work and obviously oversight of what's being uh, learned from it. And then finally, um, obviously a lot of NGOs have been research participants uh, in projects that we funded. Maybe they've been interviewed or they've been completing surveys, or maybe they've been facilitating access to research participants because they work directly with people researchers are interested in talking to. And their NGOs can have an important role making sure that that access is done appropriately and equitably. So they might be advising on issues around payments uh, for participants, maybe around safeguarding and support um, and consent processes as well. But this is just a sort of flavour of roles NGOs could play based on what we've seen in some of the projects that we've worked with. This slide, I'm not going to go, go through in too much detail because uh, Joe will speak to the research process itself. And much of what's on this slide probably seems obvious anyway, but I just wanted to kind of break down partnerships into their different stages, really to make one point, which is that partnerships don't just begin on day one of a research project and then end as soon as the report is completed. Um, I think it's really important to emphasise that partnerships can often begin a long time before even a funding application is, is, is started um, and it's an existing relationship and then may well continue after the project is complete. And maybe there are a number of projects where um, academics and NGOs will continue to collaborate. Um, and we've certainly seen that in the work that we've funded. So what are some of the challenges and the opportunities that we've seen? Um, so I'll, I'll highlight a few things here. They are mostly challenges, and I don't want that to sound negative because it's not supposed to be, um, because often project teams do find creative ways around these challenges, but it's useful to highlight them nonetheless, I think. So we certainly have seen that multi-stakeholder research partnerships do need more coordination. And from a funder perspective, um, you know, it's important that there's a single team member who we can contact, who's a lead point of contact for the project. And that can be more difficult if multiple partners are organising or managing different parts of the project. Then there are funding constraints, which is obviously key to our role. Um, that can sometimes limit the role that non-academic partners can play. Um, but what we are doing as a funder is we are um, trying to innovate in the funding we offer so that we're offering opportunities now where um, NGO partners can lead on projects and can receive up to 50% of the funding for a given project, um, which is uh, something quite new for us. Previously, there were constraints that, that limited that. Um, and then the final point goes back to my previous slides. We know that often when um, you know we're a research funder, we put out a call for grant applications. We know that those deadlines, unfortunately, are not uh, not always as long as everyone might like them to be, because um, they can't be, unfortunately, due to external constraints. And that means that sometimes stakeholders do have to rely on existing partnerships when they're putting together a joint application. NGO resourcing, we know is an issue because NGOs have often told us that it is. Um, they might get, certainly in the modern slavery space, and I assume this is true more widely, lots of research partnership requests from academics, and they don't necessarily know those academics, and they might not know which requests to say yes to or really what they involve in terms of a time or resource commitment. So that can be quite a tricky thing, and again goes to the point around sometimes existing relationships mean that those questions have already been ironed out. But then, of course, once a relationship is started, um, there's a whole process of deciding on shared objectives and approaches. And obviously, as we'll talk more about, NGOs and academics have very different contexts in terms of their timelines, their incentives, what they're trying to achieve, um, and all of that needs to be navigated. I'll just briefly mention at this point that the Modern Slavery PEC has set up a Google group mailing list, which is um, a space in which uh, people who are interested in partnering on modern slavery research projects can contact one another. Um, and we'll highlight that again at the end of the workshop and give you a link in case you're interested in joining. So what's worked well? Well, this kind of goes directly out of some of the challenges that I've just outlined. Um, We've seen projects work really well where responsibilities and different roles in a multi-partner team are very clear from the beginning um, and that everyone's clear on objectives and payment schedules and the kind of basic logistical things that help projects to run well. 
Definitely um, appropriate and sensitive engagement has been a key thing, especially where vulnerable groups are involved, such as people who have lived experience of modern slavery, you know, whether they're actually part of the project team or whether they are stakeholders in the project. Um, I've already mentioned this, but it's really important we've seen to get basic arrangements like payment schedules right, which just means everyone's on the same page about when someone is getting paid and, you know, whether that what frequency that is and how much because different organizations have different um, flexibility and constraints in terms of uh, what they need in funding. So that needs to be quite clear up front. And then finally, the point again around taking time and resource to build up really robust partnerships. So what are we doing differently? Well, we're a research funder. We work closely with the projects that we fund and we are trying to react to some of the challenges that we've seen and change what we do to make it easier for academic and non-academic collaborations to work. So one of the things I mentioned is the 50% funding split. Previously, that was 30% maximum. Now it's 50% on some projects that we fund can go to the third sector, the NGO partner. Um, and under some funding calls, uh, the NGO partner can lead the research. Um, it usually has to be a UK-based partner for the, for the funding that we administer. And what that does, we hope, is recognise the expertise outside of academia and make for different mixes of partners on research projects and different kinds of dynamics. We've also started um, creating bespoke contracts and payment plans for each project that we fund. And that's just to ensure that we do everything we can to make sure that those contract and payment arrangements are clear and equitable upfront. And we're always learning about how to do that better. Um, and generally, we found it's very project specific uh, and hence the bespoke approach. We also ask project teams to write about their partnership plans and objectives and reflect on those through the project. And the reason for doing this is that partnerships can be quite an intangible thing. It's not like a research output um, or a, a particular piece of policy impact, but it is really important. And we want to emphasize that we value that and recognize the importance of partnerships in the projects that we fund. So we engage with teams um, and ask them to reflect on what they want in terms of what they want to get out of the project in terms of partnerships. Um, and then that helps to have a conversation around uh, those objectives. In the space that we work in, engagement of people with lived experience of modern slavery is really important. So we work closely with the projects that we fund to support them to do that in an appropriate and meaningful way, uh, wherever that is appropriate for the project. Um, and that's another form of uh, collaboration that we value very highly. Finally, we're starting to run events like this workshop, um, which are around targeted capacity building on these issues. So we're trying to draw together some of the learning from the projects we funded and from our work with those projects. And then um, together with the expertise of invited speakers, feed that back out to um, stakeholders who might be interested in those learnings. And there will be an opportunity at the end of the workshop for you to give any feedback on other topics where you would value this kind of a session. And we're really interested to hear suggestions from you about that. Um, and obviously, if that's something that's come up in our work and we feel we can talk to, we can explore organising future events about that. Okay. So um, I'm going to move on now to our two guest speakers. Um, our first speaker will be Karen Everly from Oxford University. Um, Karen's going to talk about some of the kind of institutional structures and the finance aspects of um, uh, universities. And the aim here is to kind of highlight some key considerations for NGOs in terms of what the research sector looks like, how it works, and how that uh, affects non-academic partnerships. So um, over to you, Karen. Thank you very much. Right, if I take control, okay. Great, thank you. So yes, I'm Karen Evely. Um, I have worked at Oxford University in research administration for uh, over 20 years now, and I've been in the law faculty for over 12 years. So my, um, so within the law faculty, we have lots of researchers working in areas that may um, may likely may fit with research interests um, in, in this group today. Um, we have the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights, which is a partner in the, um, the Modern Slavery Policy and Evidence Centre. We have um, Centre for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies. And within um, Centre for Criminology, we have a border criminologies group and a death penalty group. So those people um, might be working with non-academic organisations who are interested in providing support for asylum seekers 
or working with people facing the death penalty or people who experience domestic violence or maybe vulnerable people um, navigating the court system in the UK um, or people who are in properties affected by cladding on tower blocks. So that's the housing after Grenfell research. So lots of different types of activity. Um, and many of our researchers do want to work with non-academic groups. The universities um, are all quite um, complicated structures. Some of us are necessarily complicated. Um, I'm going to talk about Oxford University specifically, but it will be quite similar, I expect, in most universities across the UK. So it's not necessarily easy to navigate a university, but I would guess that as, a, as an NGO, you might start off knowing the researcher name or you've read a paper by a researcher or you've heard someone speak. So if you're starting with them, it doesn't really matter to you where they sit within the university. Um, Sometimes you might um, you might have heard that a department is interested in a particular area of research, so you might be looking for someone that through that route. You hopefully most departments will have a, a website, a good website that you can easily navigate, and you can find researchers that way. Central university websites um, might may, may or may not have the information about the research activity within the department, so that might won't always be the best place to start. Once you've found that right person who um, wants to discuss ideas, um, the, the only reason I would suggest for understanding some of the structure within the university is that you um, might need to understand some of the delays in the funding processes or decision processes. So if I explain this slide that we've got here in Oxford, we have four academic divisions. Each division will have lots of departments or faculties or schools or institutes and centres, and we use loads and loads of different names in some cases, they mean the same thing. In other cases, they're different. So again, don't worry too much about the name of the group that you're finding, but um, we do like to complicate it. Um, some departments or faculties might have a centre or an institute within that department. And then you might have research groups within a centre and then you'll find your researcher. And the terminology here, when we talk about funding, research funding, we'll talk about a principal investigator or a co-investigator or researcher. So all these different terms. The, oh, I'm not picking the best way to move on from slide to slide there. And then in Oxford and a couple of other universities around the UK, we complicate it even further by saying we have colleges. So in Oxford, most colleges do not administer research funding. It doesn't matter too much because most of the research staff will be employed possibly both by a department to the university and also by a college. But sometimes you'll have um, researchers who are just employed by colleges and then you need to think about how the um, uh, funding is administered. The decision points. So within a research group, you might have um, academic discussions about what the fund, what the priorities, what the research areas are that that group wants to prioritise. And that might also happen at a centre level. And then in terms of administrative support and administrative approvals, that might happen at a centre level and at a department or a faculty level. However, in Oxford, and I guess in most universities in the UK, the legal entity is the whole university. So uh, in terms of funding and receiving funding from external funders, the, the, the agreement, the contract, the funding contract is at an institutional level. So you need institutional approval. And it's at that point that the contract negotiations might take place. And that might be the partnership or the, the contract between the funder and the university, but also between the university and the partner organisations. So maybe you as NGOs. So that's just to try and explain um, some of the delays you might uh, not be expecting when you have these conversations. And then who you're looking for and who who might be eligible to lead on a research project. So if you're if you're talking with a, a, a researcher, an academic in a university, are they able to apply for the funding and, and set up the partnership with you? So you might have titles such as professor or associate professor or lecturers. And then you've got all loads and loads of different titles for research staff. And and then when you talk about the funding, you're talking about principal investigators and co-investigators. The, it's, it's likely that the professors and the associate professors might have permanent posts, 
but there'll be an awful lot of people, an awful lot of researchers in universities who have fixed term contracts. They might have a two year contract or a three year contract, and therefore that might affect their eligibility to lead on a grant application. If you've got, and some funders might say, um, you can only be a principal investigator on a grant if you already have an employment contract that runs beyond the end of that project proposal. If you've got postdoctoral researchers, those people might have that title because they have full funding for a research project for two or three years, and therefore they're fully committed to that research project. And the funder might say they're not meant to work on anything else at the same time. And then research assistants, so research assistant would suggest a more junior researcher, but in some cases those research assistants might, might have a PhD, they might be eligible to apply for their own funding, they just at the moment happen to work on someone else's project, but it could be that that person is the expert in the field that you're particularly interested in, and so there is an opportunity there to, um, to apply for funding. So the universities will have rules on who is allowed to lead on a research project and the application for research funding, and then the funders will have rules on that and they'll all be, they'll be slightly different. Um, so just another thing to navigate. And then as administrators, we have loads of different titles and just across Oxford, the person who does my job in other departments around our division, social sciences division, we might all have slightly different job titles. So again, don't worry about the job titles. You're talking to the researcher and then you are um, making sure that that academic, that researcher has spoken to the right administrator and then that administrator is the providing the support. So normally we're called administrators or facilitators. Very occasionally we have the title manager in our in our jobs, not normally. Um, and then we might have people who talk about knowledge exchange or have that in their in their job title. And that's particularly those where we're looking at supporting funding or supporting projects where we're working with non-academic partners. And I'll come to that term in a bit. So in terms of types of funding, lots of universities I think will have a few internal schemes where there's small amounts of money or maybe a block grant from an external funder that is then administered within the university. So on that type of funding you might get quicker decisions which is which is nice. It might be smaller amounts and shorter term projects. Uh, we have what we might call the standard academic research funders, so the um, UKRI, UK Research and Innovation, and the um, Arts and Humanities Council and Research Council and the Economic and Social Research Council, so the funders that Owen was referring to earlier. And then you might have industrial commercial funding or you might have philanthropic donations. And those funders will all have slightly different rules, which I'll, I'll come on to in a second. The funders will also have different priorities. So as a researcher, as an applicant for research funding or, or yeah, research funding, your research needs to fit the, the um, what the funder is interested in. There'll be lots of schemes where it's an open call and you define the project, but it still has to fit with the funder's priorities. And some of the funders will talk more about impact. Others might be more interested in pure academic research. In this particular field, I'm sure lots of people are interested in impact. The academics are doing their research because they want to see a difference in policy or they want to see a difference in, in support, how people are treated. We have knowledge exchange funding schemes. So we talk there about uh, co-design, which is something Owen mentioned earlier, or um, two-way conversation. And it's not just about the academics um, doing their research and publishing it. And then we talk about public engagement, and that can be any however you define your public. So again, working with the non-academic partners. And then some schemes are specifically about capacity building. So supporting um, maybe researchers in the global south, or it might be about supporting um, NGOs, non-academic groups to, um, to build capacity in research areas. So all this different terminology um, and that um, where the, the lead applicants for this funding need to think about what the funders priorities are. And then just a, a little bit about the structure of the partnership. So some funders will expect the academics to be leading on the application. Others will expect a non-academic lead. Um, as the non-academic partner, you'd expect to be named in the application and part of the, the application, but in what capacity? So you might be listed as a co-investigator, you might be listed as a consultant, 
You might be a named supplier because you're delivering a service. And then with all these different um, terms, it might affect the type of funding you can get. So Owen made reference to um, non-academic partners being able to have up to 50% of the funding with that particular model. Um, other organised, other funders might say um, you can have all your direct costs on your uh, for your non-academic partner, whereas your academic partner um, might have different type of funding model. So on that, it's difficult to say. If you heard that there was a funding scheme where there was a million pounds available for a particular project, um, don't assume it's all for the, the, the direct project costs. And don't assume by, that by saying, OK, 50 percent for the for the academic and 50 percent for the non-academic, you are. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing just because the funding is the model is different. I've put their full economic cost and I don't want to go into that because that is something that confuses so, so many people. But universities um, need to understand the costs around their projects. So we talk about the overhead. Um, the support costs around the project, which you all have in NGOs as well, and the funders recognise that and they will pay, contribute to that sometimes, but in different ways. Research ethics and data handling. Now, in this field, I'm sure that NGOs are incredibly sensitive to the, to the nature of the data that you are handling, but the processes in universities might be different. So, uh, any university researcher collecting any personal data will need to get research ethics approval from the university. And that might be quite a different process to the way you talk in your organisations about handling, handling data carefully and sensitively. And we're not just talking about interviewing people with lived experiences or vulnerable research participants. This might be interviews with elites as well. So we talk, we might talk about people um, heads of organisations talking about their understanding of structure or processes within an organisation. And then we're also interested in researcher safety. So we've got an obligation um, to, to look after our, our employees. And then data handling. Um, we might have um, approval processes at the start of a project before we can sign contracts, um, understanding who owns the data up front, what data is being transferred, who's storing the data, how long is it kept for? And if your systems um, are different to what the university would normally have, then it might mean a bit more paperwork in terms of understanding that and getting that approved. Not to say that you have to change the way you work, but just that it's different to what the university is doing. And so, as I said, you're likely to be very familiar with the issues. It's just that the approval processes might be quite different in the university. So final point. Um, our structures can seem incredibly complicated, um, but please don't let that deter you. Build a relationship with the researchers and find the administrator um, at the university who can talk to your administrator or your finance officer so that we can ensure that the admin support is there um, alongside the research discussions. Uh, we're here to help, but things can take a little longer than you might expect. And I will finish at that point. Thanks so much, Karen. Um, hugely useful uh, walk through all of the very many different aspects of uh, partnering with a, a university on a research project. Um, I think if it's OK, we're going to move straight on to our second speaker, Professor Jeremy Han. Um, but we will have time at the end for questions for both speakers. Um, so please pop those in the Q&A or save them and use the raise hand function at the end. Um, but for now, I'm going to move on to Joe. So over to you, Joe, and um, maybe if you say next slide, I'll move on when you want me to. Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you for joining. I'll be quite quick today, so there is plenty of time for um, some questions. So just a little bit about me. Um, I work at the University of Liverpool. I'm the director for the Centre for Sustainable Business, and my own research is around modern slavery and supply chains. Um, as Owen said, I've had some um, funding through from the Modern Slavery Policy and Evidence Centre that worked with two NGOs. One was very small, one was a bit larger. Just a bit about where those relationships came from. So as Owen mentioned, they were existing relationships, but we hadn't actually worked together. But we'd been having lots of conversations for a while and it was finding that opportunity that then worked. And as an academic, my advice, if you are an NGO and you're trying to find somebody 
trying to go through all these university pages can be really difficult. The Policy and Evidence Centre is a really good broker for finding people. They know who's active in this space. They know the funding calls and eligibility. Um, as Owen said, he has got the, the Google group, which is really useful. Um, but my advice would be always go to the Policy and Evidence um, Centre and ask for some advice. And they can always broker those relationships with the appropriate people to save you spending hours trying to navigate various universities' websites. OK, so next slide, please. Be like Chris Whitty. Um, so in terms of the value of academic research, so Karen has talked about some of this already. But the thing that we are trying to do, particularly in um, the space of modern slavery, is have impact in the real world. We want to be able to tackle modern slavery. We need to be able to understand it and we need to be able to prevent it. So that requires us to do really systemic and often innovative research to get at sometimes what's a hidden problem. So this isn't research where organisations are going, please work with us. We want to tell you everything we're doing. In this area, businesses are saying we don't really want to shine a light on that part of the problem because that's difficult for us to think about. Again, people who have lived experience of modern slavery often don't feel that they can speak up or talk about it, or it can be re-traumatising too. So there's a recognition that this is quite a difficult area for us to research. So we need to sometimes shift what we do as researchers, and largely that involves working with, with NGOs. And um, you're our, our, our way to partner to really try to get to what is happening? How does this happen? What are the the reason why it's happened? And more importantly, what might we do about it? So next slide, please, Owen. So the next, the rest of my slide is in pictures. Um, so just really to explain my my experience of working in this area and working with NGOs and where I think there is real opportunities for you to get involved with us. Um, and where it can be a, a really shared collaboration that really has impact and tackling and preventing modern slavery at its heart. And the first that this slide um, represents to me is what are we actually going to research? This is about the research question. And we have a real tension here. We have us academics often on the right hand side, you know, really high up, trying to look at this generalised issue from a very conceptual or abstract way. Then we have NGOs who are very context specific, working with particular groups of people or particular regions with particular experiences. They're very problem specific and they're often tightly bounded in terms of where they work. And what we're trying to do, particularly through um, the Policy and Evidence Centre, is to try to find a balance. So one's really high and abstract, one's really detailed and into the, into the detail. And the real benefit of, of research is when we can find that middle ground and that balance somewhere. Because if we're trying to get research and theories that help us to explain the phenomena of modern slavery and understand the mechanisms by which we can have some positive influence, we need context, we need that detail that we academics often don't get access to. But equally, we need to be able to pull that out and abstract that away so we can leverage the learning. If it's too specific a problem that only applies to that particular context, it's very hard for us to leverage that learning to other areas. And this is where the conversation happens. So in terms of the NGOs we've worked with, we've been having these conversations back and forth for quite a long time. And we're starting to figure out where the problem is. What, where we can add value and where the NGO can add value and how collectively we can complement each other and have some real impact. So it doesn't happen where there's a funding call and we then go out to NGOs and we, we put a bid together. It, it's much more organic than that. It's having these conversations in the background and then finding, OK, where can we add value? And then hoping a call comes along where we can start to match. And academics and NGOs do feed into the, the Policy and Evidence Centre too. It's not just these research priorities that have come from nowhere. They come from us and they come from you. And they come from um, people with lived experience. They're, they're what the, the, the PEC does. It, it does that really well. So hopefully we are reflecting these conversations in the research priorities. OK, next slide, please. 
So the next area where I think there's real opportunity for us to work together, and for me, this is where there's that real sweet spot of us both adding value to this um, to this problem. So as academics, certainly in the management school, we're working with businesses. You know, how are businesses responding to modern slavery in their corporate supply chains? Recognising that other colleagues work in the law school, they may have um, different areas of research. But for us specifically, we're working with businesses. And while that's good in part, it doesn't necessarily reflect the issues of the day and those lived experiences of particular groups. It reflects how businesses are viewing modern slavery. So there's a real bias in there. And when we start to look at research that has been done in the past, it's often big businesses who've got nice glossy PR departments. Are we really getting to the heart of the, the things, the social and economic inequalities that create the risks for modern slavery? Probably not. And we often see it through a financial lens. So what's the business case for managing and tackling modern slavery? So you can see that that's really problematic for many um, for many reasons. And what we need to bring into this conversation is different people's voices. We need diversity, not just of the companies we deal with, but the people who have got different experiences from different regions, different groups, different sectors. and Working with NGOs, we can really start to bring those people into the conversation. Now, they could be the people with lived experience or they may be advocacy groups. They may be education groups. We can bring those people together. And what we're starting to see here when we work with NGOs, it's not the relationship just with the university and the NGO. What becomes really powerful is when businesses start to see the potential of working with NGOs because we can shed a light on here's the things that you you don't see here's the things you're not looking at in your supply chains and also here's some people who can help you really understand that so it's it's making sure we create these capacities for dealing with the problem by connecting the right people and that can happen through our research as well but we have to have the right people in that conversation for that to happen okay, next slide Okay, this slide for me is really where our blind spots are as academics. So as academics, we're really good at writing up research papers, analysing the data robustly, doing it all in this very methodical, peer-reviewed, scientific way. But often we're writing research papers for other researchers. So while that's valuable for us to talk to one another and for us to leverage some of that knowledge, is it really tackling modern slavery? Not particularly, no. And we have our blind spots because we're working in, in one trajectory to try and do something on this line here. And we need people like yourselves to give us new insights on our data. So we can look at our data really robustly, really methodically, publish it, peer-reviewed journals. It, from a scientific point of view, it can be technically correct, but we can still miss things because we don't see it through your lenses. So where we found it been really useful is when we've done our analysis, we've brought NGOs and other groups in, say, how do you read this data? And interestingly, what they see is the nuance, or they will just ask a different question of the data. We can then go and do the analysis, but we need to make sure we're asking the right questions of it. And from what perspective are, are we looking at it? So we may be sort of, used to look at it from a business perspective rather than the lived experience perspective. And that changes what we see in the data. So we want to work with NGOs who can give us those new insights and see the data in a different light. And we have our own blind spots and we're well aware of many of our blind spots, but not all of them. So again, this needs to be a conversation. Okay, next slide. And this is the final slide for me. So as I said, it's it's a very short presentation. So there's lots of um, time for some for some conversation. So when we have our academic papers and our academic knowledge, and we've done this research project and it's all been done scientifically, it's all been done ethically, we've, we have our project. Researchers tend to think there's a target, which is the research paper. 
And there are many, many targets for receiving our information, not just academic papers. And by working with NGOs, what we're starting to see is we're really broadening how we're translating that evidence base. How are we using this new knowledge, these new insights to share more widely? And that's where we're starting to get impact. So that might be we don't need an academic paper. We need a report. We need an executive summary or we need a video or we need a training presentation or we need a workshop or a lecture or a piece of art, piece of theatre. All of these things can be driven from our evidence but need to be spread out and disseminated in different ways. And working with NGOs allows us to share that evidence through those different networks to hit many different targets to tackle modern slavery and to understand it. And we can't do that on our own. We have a really small part to play in that. OK, next two. Ne that's it. So this last Im last two images. Um, really reflects some of the, again, another tension that we see when we work with NGOs. So the, the stopwatch is representative of the urgency of dealing with this, this problem. We know modern slavery is rife. We know it's growing. And we also know there's an urgency in dealing with not just the, the problem of how it manifests, but the social and economic and political inequalities that sit beneath that, the much more systemic areas. We have to have an urgency to address those. And the challenge that we have as academics is the snail. We don't work at that pace. And I think Karen sort of alluded to the many different processes that we have to go through to get funding, to get ethics, but also publishing. And the, the way publishing works, it's all peer reviewed, it's all double blind reviewed, it's very slow. From writing a paper to publishing it, is often about two years, that process. It's really, really slow, but it's really slow for a reason. It's really slow to double check every single claim we're making, because if policies and practice are going to change off the back of it, we need to make sure that evidence is really robust. It's done methodically, it's been done ethically, it's been approved all the way along. So there's a necessity of why it's slow. The problem that we have is that there's an urgency on the problem. So we need to find better ways to work together to almost have a twin track. So how do we get some insights that we can start working on today and the evidence sort of trots along in the background? So for us, NGOs help us to navigate that tension that yes, we can start to get some of our insights out there so change and impact can happen and the evidence base takes its it's slow pace in the background that where we're assured of quality before things change more systemically. Are we actually getting them to change in the right place? And that's me. Thank you very much.